My interview with Jonathan Raymond, the author of Good Authority, How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting For. And while I knew it was going to be a great interview, this is really about you. If you're already a senior leader and sometimes you doubt whether you can lead your people, this book gives you permission to simply be good enough. Be good at being able to listen, provide the feedback, and inspire your people. And I also speak to the emerging leader. There are so many people that I mentor. You know who you are. I'm speaking to you. This book is your permission to start being the leader that people are looking for you to be. And this is the time for you to remove the thoughts of, I can't, I don't, I'm not smart enough. There's still more for me to learn. I propose to you to forget about all of this. This book, this conversation is about giving you permission that you can be the leader that your people need. Let's listen. One of my favorite clients, and we all love all of our clients, but one of my favorite clients came to a keynote that I had done maybe four years ago. And he came from an incredible manufacturing background, very accomplished, uh, you know, operational leader. And the talk that I had given was all about conversations. It was all about accountability conversations and the accountability dial, which is the one of the main tools that I teach. And I was just getting started with Refound, really, you know, for four or five years ago. It was kind of very early stages at this business. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, that's it. He's like, that's the thing that's missing. He's like, I've been in this game for 25 years. And that's the thing that we still don't really know how to do is how to have the conversations and how to talk to each other in a way that's direct, but is also human, that's based in curiosity. And he said that what you're talking about, like, we need that. Can you please come and check out what we're doing? And, and that was a big eye opener for me. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, my name is Deb Coviello, and I want to thank you for joining us on another episode of the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I get to speak to amazing leaders and share their insights and inspiration with you. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share with others, rate and review so we can continue to bring you great programming. And now it is my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Raymond. Jonathan is the author of Good Authority and the CEO of Refound. He learned the hard way what happens when you lose your way as an executive, the impacts it can have on your team, your business, and your life. And more importantly, he learned how to turn that dynamic around, how to drive performance by becoming more human with the team rather than less. And he has worked with a wide variety of leaders and specializes in helping executives and senior leaders who are navigating periods of high growth or uncertainty. And he's a half-decent barista, a passionate SUP surfer, and a proud dad to two amazing girls. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hey, Deb. Thanks for having me on. Hey, and I don't know anything about surfing. What is SUP? (laughs) (laughs) So it stands for Stand Up Paddleboard. So it it became sort of a widespread thing a little like 10, 15 years ago, but it's still kind of on the fringes of surfing. So we surf, but we surf on a stand-up paddleboard with a paddle. 
which sometimes makes surfers mad, but we do our best to be respectful. So so how did you get into that? And what do you like about it? I started surfing when I lived in the Bay Area back in the mid 2000s. I always loved the ocean. I was like a water kid. You know, I was always in the water, whether lake, pond, puddle, ocean, whatever, you know, give me water, I go in. And so I started surfing and I, and I enjoyed it. And I was kind of, you know, sort of okay at it. But I, I developed a kind of a shoulder injury and I, that I couldn't shake. And a friend of mine was a stand-up surfer and he said, oh, you should try stand-up because different motion, you know, using different parts of your body, different kind of range. And I switched about a year ago and never looked back. And, uh, you know, it's just been, it's been great for me. And I am uh, 48 years old. It's good to be standing up uh, rather than laying down when I'm surfing. It's a little bit of a you know, easier on the body. Well, you know, just being able to stand up in general sometimes. <laughs> yes enjoy nature and doing something that's physically and hopefully emotionally very rewarding for you. Yeah, it's one of the only things that I do where I don't think about anything else when I'm doing that, which is a nice uh, thing to have in your day. You know, I just think there is something already in that. There's there's a nugget, everybody listening, there's a nugget, allowing your mind to just go blank. Let the brain short circuit if for an hour, a half a day, or an entire weekend. It is so rejuvenating to the creative process and being able to serve others. So I'd love to just get into it. You have an amazing uh, journey. Just maybe share a little bit more with our listeners, something about you personally, your journey, and the work that you're so passionate about. I really struggled for a long time uh, after graduating law school. I grew up in New York in a very sort of New York-centric environment in childhood. I really struggled for a long time trying to figure out what did I want to be in the world? How did I want to? How did I want to show up? You know, what was what was my contribution? How could I add value to the world? And I bounced a lot between business jobs. I was you know kind of had a career in business development as a founder, as a leader inside of other people's organizations as well. And in my personal life, I was really passionate about meditation and yoga and mindfulness and sort of deeper spiritual pursuits. And I, I could never figure out how to get those two worlds to come together because I was very passionate about entrepreneurship. I love starting businesses, building businesses, growing businesses, working with teams, working with people. It was really about 10 years ago that I first got exposure to the type of work that I do now. And that really was the, the watershed moment for me of finding a way to to bring those two worlds together where I work in the business context. I work with CEOs and senior leaders and, and we work with organizations, but we do that in a way that I think really honors some of the fundamental principles of how personal growth and behavior change actually happens. So that's that's a bit about me and, and what we do. And also tell me a little bit more about the barista. That's something <laughs> that you, <laughs> tell me more about that. Yeah, I find that the more digital our world gets, the more passionate I get about analog things. I'm probably not alone in that. And so that's, you know, we talked a little bit about surfing. There's nothing digital about it, right? Making espresso, there's nothing digital about it, at least my version of it. And so I'm always looking for it. I love to cook. So anything where I can use my hands, anything where I can like chop or pour or measure or weigh, anything that's like like that is very satisfying to balance out the, the uh, time that I spend on the computer. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we resonate because we're, you know, very technical in our craft, whether it's engineering, finance, marketing, business, but there is an equal need to nourish the other part of oneself. So you do stand up surfing, I curl and throw stones. There is a strategy. Awesome. It, it is an athletic sport, that, but it's also for social pleasure and it's, it's time away from everything else. If you're frustrated, you can throw some stones. If you just want to connect with people, you can socialize. We've been fortunate this year, even with COVID, that we were able to 
come together in a safe way. And that creative component, I love cooking. <laughs> I mm. love chopping. <laughs> I love serving serving and entertaining and building community. Uh, I do find my mind drifts and in going into that creative process. So I think people can have the benefit of both worlds, both yeah. their technical pursuits and also the creative ones and bringing that together. Yeah. And I think that's been, well, I know it's been a big struggle for a lot of people during COVID in the last year. People who are, you know, sort of in, in not necessarily who started their own company, but who are working in some really challenging environments, trying to keep things moving, trying to keep, you know, a lot of companies went through enormous growth over the last year, 18 months. Some had real struggles, but but everybody dealt with the same incredibly confusing, incredibly chaotic landscape. And it made it difficult to practice self-care. It made it difficult to take care of yourself and to do the things that you just described to make sure that we stay in balance. And I think where we are right now is people are going, okay, whoa, that was, that was intense. I need to find my way back to myself somehow. And that's a lot of the, a lot of the conversations that we're having at Refound these days. You know, that's so insightful is getting back to that self-care. And again, sometimes in the past, people didn't want to talk about that. I just did a LinkedIn Live today where I talk about my pyramid last year in 2020 was about first revenue, then building brand credibility and recognition. And on the bottom of the pyramid was self-care and, and all of that. And I failed miserably on the bottom of the pyramid because I didn't make it a primary focus. So this year, I flipped the pyramid. I focus on my health and wellness. There's no business if I ain't well. And then focus on the brand building and outreach and providing value with the belief the revenue will come. So mm -hmm. we're going to give it a try. Start with self-care. Most important, that's what matters in the long run. Yeah. So your book, The Good Authority, I know you've wrote it in 2017, but even today it continues to provide more value. Could you just tell us a little bit more what was behind writing that book? Why did you write the book? Yeah, so I considered myself to be a self-reflective person. I thought of myself as somebody who cared about others, who wanted to develop people. But uh, what was actually true was that I didn't know how to do it. And in spite of my best intentions, the conversations that I was having with my senior leaders, the culture that I was creating for them and for their direct reports was way too heavy-handed in terms of my authority as a CEO having way too much influence and it was having more of an impact than I ever imagined. And I started to see the ways that, you know, I would send an email or I would make a comment in a meeting and it would all of a sudden generate a hundred projects, right? I was like, whoa, 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 I don't know. It was just an idea. I just, I was just wanted to talk about it. Right? And I started to see in living color, not only in my own world, but also in my fellow leaders, how we were disempowering our teams without ever intending to do that. So I started to make some changes and I started to work with my leaders uh, on some of those changes. And I and I had not found a, I mean, I haven't read all 35,000 books on leadership on Amazon, uh, to be fair, but I had not found a leadership, a people leadership methodology that spoke to me. I found that the, the methodologies that were out there were either too corporate, sort of cold and sort of performance-based, or they were too soft and squishy and new agey. I find myself somewhere in it, exactly in the middle, I like to think. I think performance matters. I think performance is important. And I think there's a way to do humanity and personal growth and maybe even spirituality at work that is exactly in alignment with that. So I decided to write a book about my experience with a lot more time, let's say, to do that than I do now. I had a lot more time to write that book. But I remember the advice of a someone who I, who I knew uh, indirectly, and I won't curse, but he said, if you're going to write a book, write a blank book 
like write a really good book was the phrase. <laughs> Don't waste your time. And so I really tried to put a, a lot of effort and I you know, surrounded myself with some good people to write what I hoped would become an impactful, a really good book. That's another reason why we resonate because I am writing, actually, it's in with the editor. Hopefully by the time people listen to this, they're going to see the pre-launch details, the CEO's compass. And it is a culmination of my personal experiences going into transformational change and trying to find my way out and mm. get back on track to get the ship going in the right direction and being productive. And now I drop into organizations and I see that they don't need a full system. They're already talented. They've got a lot of great people, but there are eight compass points that I see that if you just kind of tweak one or two of them, it's all you need. And performance is in there, but there's a lot of mindset, working with the people, the dynamics of the people and how they interact with each other aligned on purpose to peace of mind. So this is amazing. And I do want to go into some of the details, but this approach that you have seen that not only worked for you, how have you made it work for others that you coach? Is there an example or a story of a CEO in trouble or what was the impact? And what was it that by applying some of this work and dialing in hmm. accountability that you were able to help them? I met one of my favorite clients, and we all love all of our clients, but uh, one of my favorite clients came to a keynote that I had done maybe four years ago. He came from an incredible manufacturing background, very accomplished uh, you know, operational leader. The talk that I had given was all about conversations. It was all about accountability conversations and the accountability dial, which is the one of the main tools that I teach. And I was just getting started with Refound, really, you know, for four or five years ago. It was kind of very early stages at this business. He came up to me afterwards and he said, that's it. He's like, that's the thing that's missing. He's like, I've been in this game for 25 years. And that's the thing that we still don't really know how to do is how to have the conversations and how to talk to each other in a way that's direct, but is also human, that's based in curiosity. And he said that what you're talking about, like, we need that. Can you please come and check out what we're doing? And that was a big eye opener for me because my background, you know, I come from, I came from sort of tech startups, very office driven, very, you know, kind of, you know, very white collar, you know, very West Coast kind of businesses. And this was very much not like that. It was manufacturing, it was in the Midwest, and it was a very different type of culture. And to find out that this set of skills was equally relevant there, that was a huge light bulb for me where I was like, okay, I'm, I think I'm onto something. This isn't just for my little insular world of kind of West Coast entrepreneurs. You know, what I like about the book that you wrote is that it's, it's very actionable. As you go through chapter by chapter, first of all, you people will find stories that resonate with them. Like, that's me. Like, mm -hmm. one of the things you talk about when you talk about, like, individuals on the team, um, the arch archetypes, it was the peacemaker. And I looked at that and, and I don't think, I, I still think I'm a peacemaker at heart, you know, but the origins of being a peacemaker and all of the different types of employees, I think are really critical. So for mm. me, you know, my upbringing, my education, my life, et cetera, was just always in chaos. So then there's a natural tendency to seek peace and consensus so that everybody gets along and still achieve the goals. But what that happens is you can sometimes use that too much and you lose the ability to have conversations for action to change behavior, etc. So I really love the way you break down the individuals because they all need to be dealt with a little bit differently as you have those important conversations on behavior. Yeah, one of the things that I that I share, you know, there's a lot of talk out there. I think it's also it's often good talk about focusing on our strengths and focusing on what we do well and doing more of that. And that's that's true. But what my experience has been is that almost most of the time, the most impactful change we can make as leaders is not actually doing more of what we're good at. 
but actually finding context for what we're good at, the way you're describing. So it's good that you're a peacemaker, but finding a context so, so that you actually have flexibility or agility with that skill. So I know how to be a peacemaker, but this is a moment where that's actually not the right thing to do. So I don't, I'm not a one trick pony. And that's what I think the leaders, that's where the most impactful change is, is not necessarily to keep building that strength, but to know how to use that strength responsibly. I know. So being a peacemaker, <laughs> even though it was a strength of mine, actually became a detriment for me to be able to have the right kind of impact. Now, with somebody who may be highly emotional, they have their their things, their baggage, a peacemaker may be the right approach. If somebody is just kind of a just tell me what to do kind of person, you may be able to have a more direct conversation. So I'm going to switch this a little bit. There is a concept that you talk about borrowed authority. Mm. And I would love you to unpack that a little bit because that really resonated with me a little bit. Can you just share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when I was writing the book and we decided to call it Good Authority, my editor said, so so this may sound like a dumb question, but is the opposite of good authority bad authority? And I said, not really. The opposite of good authority is really borrowed authority. And what I meant by that is it's the authority that we are carrying, that we don't know we are carrying, that is the result of our life experience. And maybe things beyond our life experience. But our, let's, if we stick to this current life, it's the things that we learned about authority as kids, probably from our parents, maybe one more than the other, from our teachers, from our coaches, from religious figures, from mentors, from, from first bosses. We have so many experiences of authority that we can't help as impressionable human beings to pick up a version of authority from the people around us. Now, sometimes... We match the version of the authority. Oh, my father was very strict, therefore I'm very strict. Sometimes we go the other way. My father was very strict, so I tend to be very permissive. Sometimes it's a mix. It's a a mishmash. But we can't escape the reality that we didn't make a conscious decision when we were five years old. What kind of authority do I want to be? That's not how it happened, right? We became, we borrowed the versions of authority from from the influential people, from our culture, right? It looks really different in a Japanese culture than it does in an American culture. So we borrowed authority because that was what we knew. And now we find ourselves in a leadership position, maybe a senior leadership position, maybe first time manager, doesn't matter. And now we are in a position of authority. And what do we have to work with? We've never, no, there's no high schools that I'm aware of. There's no colleges. There's no training programs that help you figure out, hey, what's your version of authority? that you want to carry forward into your leadership? What is the baggage that you have around authority and how can you get rid of the baggage that you don't want? So now we do some of that at Refound. It's not all that we do. But that conversation, like if you can't talk about that as part of your leadership, both how you're leading the team and also how people are internalizing, right? Because not only do we act as authority, we also respond to authority based on our past experience. If you can't talk about that, you're trying to build culture. You're trying to do transformation with both hands tied behind your back. It's, it's the nine million pound elephant in the middle of the room. That's what I mean by borrowed authority. And how we get to good authority is not by pretending, but actually digging in a little bit and being like, oh, you know what? That's not how I want to be. I don't need to be that way anymore. I'm going to be this way. It's so important. And you have to unpack that and understand what it is and how you got there. Because I talk about my book, again, around culture. How did we arrive at this point? What was that past? We don't want to like throw it away and say, well, you can't be that anymore. You just need to understand how and at what time and for what reason did you adopt a behavior that served you now? 
but maybe doesn't serve you later. So really important. I want to go deeper because you, your book is amazing. I can't wait to just share more, a little mm. bit about it. But you talk about cultural listening. You know, there's a lot of people I've interviewed about culture and changing the culture of an organization and, and such. And it is integral because if you don't spend time there, any work that you're doing is bound to either regress or not stick or what have you. So can you just tell us a little bit more about your concept of cultural listening? My experience or sort of pet peeve about the way we think organizationally and the way the way most people tend to operate, and it's not a it's not blaming, it's more just like we don't get good training around this, is we're very literal and very tactical, right? So when we think about culture, it's like we think about the things that we can see, the things that we can touch. What are the actions we can take? What are the outcomes that we want? What are the metrics that we're measuring? We get very focused especially these days, because we can be, we can see so much, or we think we can see so much, that we often forget to listen. We often forget to use our more human powers and say, what, what's, what, what am I actually feeling? What am I actually sensing when I'm in this team meeting? Like, what's, what's not being said? What, when we talk about culture, we have all these, we have these values, and maybe we have these behaviors that we've talked about, but like, what, what's the actual lived experience here? And by asking different questions and actually listening to the answer, you start to become a cultural listener and you start to be able to name dynamics that are, they're right there. Like as soon as you name them, everyone goes, yeah, yeah, that's how it's always been here. But in spite of the fact that it's always been that way, there can be nine cultural initiatives that never address it. How can that be, right? It's because we're not practiced at the art of cultural listening to go to, to relax our brain to relax our heart, to relax our physical body and actually perceive and take in because we're so focused on like, oh, we got to come up with a solution for our culture. We got to come up with a solution for our employee engagement. And it's like, it's just that very mindset is keeping you from actually finding the right solution is that perpetual fixing, solving, doing mode is actually the problem. You can't solve it from inside of that mindset. So you, so that's what cultural listening is all about. You know, I will say that this is something I discovered later in my career when, you know, you have a toolbox of tools. I have a Six Sigma a lean black belt. I've got all the tools in my toolbox to be able to make things more efficient, improve the quality, improve performance. But I once went to a plant where their service was falling way behind. Customers were threatening to leave. And I just didn't know how I was going to solve it. But I was on the plane meeting up with another colleague there. And I said, you know, I just can't plan for this event. I just have to go and see what's happening. And while typically engineers, we'll throw money at it, we'll throw equipment, we'll throw more people at a problem. When we arrived and we simply walked the floor and looked around for hours, we actually saw a few things. We saw the body language of the people. They were tired and worn out and down. We saw no representation of leadership on the floor to be able to help and resolve the issues. And so the short-term solution, as we saw and felt it was, there was no visible leadership to enable the people to do their work. So no money, needed to be thrown at the situation, just restructuring leadership time and expectations. Mm -hmm. And people started working better together. And yes, we saw a bump. And only then, once we culturally listened, saw, felt what was going on there, then later we can throw money and resources at it. But mm -hmm. it's such a powerful tool, that blank slate approach and seeing and feeling and hearing. Yeah. And as you said, much less expensive than, you know, <laughs> so many of the other things that we, we tend to grab at. I don't want to give the book away. I want people to go out, buy your book, but you, you you know, one of the pivotal things you have in it is your accountability, accountability dial. I too 
Being a creative and wanting to go in so many different directions, I too have to hold myself accountable. I've also had to learn how to help other people be accountable, just at a really high level. Can you just share uh, conceptually what this is about so people understand? Part of the realization that I had was while I was observant about things on the team or in the organization that were problematic, whether that was on a team basis or individuals, I could see behavior that I didn't like, I could see performance that was was suboptimal. I didn't know how to talk about that behavior in a way that didn't make people feel defensive, that didn't make people shut down, and that didn't that didn't, didn't close down the inquiry instead of open it up. What I wanted to do was to open it up. I wanted to get to root causes. I wanted to, but I didn't know how to get there. I was doing something that I started to see all other managers doing, which was I would see a problem and I would wait. And maybe I would say something, but I didn't really know how to kind of really say it. And I would sort of hope the problem would go away. And then I would wait a little longer and then I would get a little frustrated and then I would be a little passive aggressive. And then I would kind of raise it in a meeting and try to kind of jab my way in. So I was like trying to take all these actions with no real kind of plan. And so I said, okay, I need a, I need a method. I need a way to actually locate myself. There's so much going on in my head. I have so much information. I need to be able to locate where am I in this conversation? Is this step one of a conversation or is this step two, step three, step four, step five? And so I built the dial for myself and also for some core clients that I had at the time so that people that I was working with could start to have conversations in a more methodical way with the goal of opening up dialogue and curiosity and critical thinking rather than getting, you know, excuses and blaming and victimhood. And one of my favorite comedians is Eddie Izzard. And he has this great bit from back in the day where, you know, it's like when parents like, did you brush your teeth? Um, uh, um, well, I, I, I was dead at the time. Like, I, you know, it's like when, any, if, when the person in authority comes to you with even seemingly innocuous information, our learned response is to defend, deflect, deny, shift the focus or whatever. And I didn't, that's not what I wanted. So the accountability dial is a five-step framework for how to start conversations in a way that creates dialogue rather than shuts it down. And that draws people into self-reflection rather than justification or victim, so victimhood or you know, blaming the system. Giving people a conversation map is so critical because we don't like controversy. We need better tools to be able to address a gap in expectation and performance. What The reason why this resonates so much with me is in my human-centric leadership course, we talk about first dealing with your own personal skills, your mindset and belief. And then I also then go into mentorship and feedback. And, and, and the role of a leader to one, first of all, you should be having regular conversations with your direct reports about the behaviors they see and talk about what should they continue because it's a strength, what they might want to start doing to enhance what they're doing or what might they want to change. Giving people something actionable real time more frequently than obviously avoiding the conversation or getting surprised perhaps in an annual review. This enables the conversation to start and continue in a productive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's what we've become famous for is the accountability dial. And it's in all of our coaching programs. It's in all of our organizational learning programs. It shows up in every keynote that I do. Like we 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 uh, we struck a chord with that tool. It's a tool to use with peers. It's not just for managers to use with their direct reports. And it's not just to talk about things that are going poorly. It's to talk about things that are going well, to reinforce positive behaviors. As you said, what do we want? What do we want to start? What do we want to stop? What do we want to continue? It's a it's a tool to create a common language around conversation, which is which is really helpful uh, in most organizations. Good authority how to interact, how to provide feedback, how to align, how to have conversations. Most of your book is about that. 
but there's another sub agenda or a sub theme that goes on there. You talk about, you know, being like the hero versus Yoda, hmm. <laughs> Be- becoming the leader, becoming that good authority that you can become, that your book provides you those guidance and tools, but then sometimes the people don't need the leader as much anymore. And you talk about dissecting that emotional response to maybe letting go, but then maybe beautiful things will happen. Can you share a little more about that? The way that we have, most of us have learned how to perform and how to do well and how to grow in our lives is through our individual contributions, through our individual performance. It's generally speaking, it's how we're measured. It's how we're measured in school. It's how we're measured in sports. It's how we're measured in job most, most of the time. And it's true, there are some, oh, that person's a good team player or whatever, but you don't get a college scholarship based on being a good team player, right? That's not the way our culture measures performance by and large. We usually measure it at the individual level. And then, and that's not necessarily a terrible thing, but it is a limiting thing in the sense that when, when we're in charge of leading a team of other people, our individual contribution, our ability to break through the obstacle, our ability to push through becomes a liability. Because other people, and the reason why we see teams don't stick together is because other people want to have a voice. Other people want to be the hero. Other people want to feel like they have an influence. You've got the the, the bigger title, the bigger, well, maybe not the bigger office these days because people are working from home, but you have more responsibility. You're in more meetings. You get more context. How are you creating space, space for other people, right? How are you creating space for them to come up with ideas and not just, hey, everybody, blah, 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 blah. What are your ideas, right? Where their ideas are always coming second and they never really get, you know, purchased and those kinds of things. And so the idea of becoming more Yoda, less superhero is, it's a big turning point for leaders that we work with to see that if you looked at the performance of your team now, what you'll see is a team of people, whether you have eight direct reports or, or a team of 80 or 800, you will see people that are that are underperforming relative to what they're capable of, not because they don't want to, not because they're stupid, not because they're foolish, not because they're careless, not because they're disengaged, but because the conditions for them to show up as their best self are not there yet. And it's your job as the leader to create the conditions, right? And you asked me before about, you know, one of my favorite moments was a real hard-edged CEO I was working with, really tough engineer, super analytical, didn't really know where that was going to go when we first started coaching. And about a year in, he said to me, he said, you know what, Jonathan? He said, you're probably going to laugh. And I said, well, maybe I will. But he said, you know what I realized? He's like, my job is to create the emotional conditions for people to show up. And I've said, okay, you're fired. My job is done here. Right. And that's the, that's the whole deal. And it's, it is an enormous mindset, culture, societal shift for us as leaders to see what's possible when we when we make that shift and it doesn't make us expendable as leaders it doesn't mean we're not we don't have anything to do anymore it elevates us and it allows us to have a bigger impact but there's a but there's a crucible you have to go through as a human being to reassess your self value as not being the person who fixes everything and solves everything and is working till 11 o'clock at night every night like that's that's a version of you is that the version of you that you want to continue with or do you want a better one? Such a powerful message. And not only does this obviously serve the CEO or senior leaders in an organization, but everything in this book is about anybody that's on a journey that has that awareness and to evaluate the authority, the leadership that they have and make the decision of how they might want to change it to get a better result. This has been an amazing interview. 
So full of value. Are there any last things you want to share with our listeners or offers before we bring this to a close? Sure. Uh, we put up a page, refound.com slash drop in CEO, where we have our one on one meeting guide. We have a video course people can check out if they want. And I'll, you know, obviously, you can get to the rest of our site from there and poke around. You can pick up good authority anywhere Amazon, Barnes and Noble however you want to do it. The audiobook is uh, me reading, which was, uh, which was fun. Uh, and then you can always, always just send an email, easiest way, just hello at refound.com and you'll get a response from a human being. I'm grateful, first of all, to know you. I am grateful for the work that you're doing and working with others. And I know you'll be very successful helping so many more people, especially hopefully the listeners on this show. So just thank you for being an amazing guest and I wish you continued success. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.